0: Asymmetrical haircuts. Justice update. In partnership with justiceinfo.net.
1: Alright. So, Janet, you've been spending some time looking into Afghanistan.
2: Yeah, I started a while back. I was really wondering about the broader effects of those US sanctions They were on people who were involved in the International Criminal Court investigations. Those were the investigations set up by the International Criminal Court Office of the Prosecutor into crimes committed on all sides in Afghanistan, Taliban, all kinds of different people, Afghan government forces themselves, and of course, potentially by the United States itself. And that's what had triggered the United States executive order of sanctions on certain individuals. So let me quote from an email I got from one of the NGOs who had been involved in this behind the scenes and they said to me, well not one single donor wanted to fund our Afghanistan activities. The ones who were supporting us before the sanctions simply shut the door in front of us. That included states as well like Germany and Norway for example who were previously prepared to support us and this person said to me, I've talked with Biden's advisors about this, that's the current president. Um, They have removed the sanctions, but it didn't really help us. While civil society were criticising the sanctions as such, they only mentioned the ones on the ICC officials and not its effect on us and on local organisations, he says. Well, out of that, I went on to look at the violence now going on as the United States now withdraws from Afghanistan militarily and how that directly affects human rights defenders in Afghanistan. And then, of course, I especially, because that's our podcast, looked at the ICC investigation.
1: I have a sinking feeling this is going to be a depressing podcast for me. But let's get first into uh, the backstory of this and uh, the Stephapedia bit Uh, Afghanistan is being looked at by the office of the prosecutor for a long time. Uh, The preliminary examination was made public in 2007. The ICC investigation is looking into crimes, as Janet said, from all sides since May 2003. Ten years later, in 2017, the prosecutor asked to request it to open an investigation. The judges pondered it for a very, very, very long time. And then said, no, you can't, because it would not be, quote, in the interest of justice. Cue a huge to-do about it and an appeal, of course. Uh, The appeals court decided differently, uh, heard from different sides, uh, had a very impassionate hearing here in The Hague. And finally, they said, yes, you can open an investigation um, in March uh, 2020. So since that time, the Office of the Prosecutor is officially investigating uh, crimes in Afghanistan. But that official opening of the investigation prompted the American administration under former President Trump at the time to order sanctions against the prosecutor, Fatou bin Sude, and one of her aides. Uh, they were uh, rescinded when Biden took office, although it took a little while for them to rescind it. And there is a lot more procedure going on, uh, but I'm hoping, Janet, that you can bring me up to
2: date with that. Well, I want to start again looking at these Afghanistan organizations. I've really tried to make sure in this podcast that we situate it with Afghanistan voices in Afghanistan itself. Here's Hadi Marafat. He's the executive director of the Afghanistan Human Rights and Democracy Organization. And I last saw him physically in The Hague for a coffee when we were chatting about things, which seems like a long time ago. Uh, He's now in Afghanistan and he explains what happened to him.
3: Unfortunately, because of the sanctions, so they couldn't uh, commit more funding to my organization, but more particularly to the broader coalition that we have the Transitional Justice Coordination Group. Because I was not only representing my, you know, my organization, but also the broader Afghan civil society and human rights organization. So that was the kind of first impact. And as a result, you know, the work that we were supposed to do with ICC, and I still had a lot to do with ICC. We are in the middle of obviously negotiation discussion with registry to improve outreach for Afghanistan, that unfortunately, you know, from the very beginning, one of the major issues that we have been discussing with them and negotiating, that they have to improve, you know, and have an active outreach uh, in the context when the situation of Afghanistan for victims.
2: So, that's what I'm calling the first form of Afghanistan limbo, of the way that these organisations have been sort of held up and don't really know what's going to happen next. Maybe also you could call it a circle of hell. So it was really difficult for these organisations to operate when the money was cut off.
1: Plus, we have the bigger picture, which basically affects everyone in Afghanistan At the moment, as the Taliban takes over, we have almost daily reports of horrendous attacks on civilians, uh, targeting of human rights defenders, shootings.
2: Yeah, with this kind of increased in violence the afghanistan's own independent human rights commission has called really publicly with a load of support from international human rights organizations as well quite a movement going on as far as i can see for the united nations to organize an independent investigation into what's going on and here's huma saeed she's a researcher in leuven at the moment but she's afghani explaining the background the series of awful attacks on ethnic minorities and
4: others This has been a call of the Afghanistan Independent Human Rights Commission following the attack, the horrific attack against the girls' schools about a month ago. And luckily now other international human rights as well as um, national human rights organizations have joined this important call um, to the UN. And uh, we hope that there would be uh, some positive response to that.
2: So I wondered also, what's it actually like being on the ground in Afghanistan right now? Uh, here's Hardy again explaining, and he's followed by Hurya Masadak, and she, along with Hardy, work for the Transitional Justice Working Group.
3: We are very much worried, Janet, because, you know, it took us more than 12 years to document, to memorialise, and then establish the Afghanistan Centre for Memorial Dialogue, the only war victims museum where you know it's a safe place for the victims to come and connect and and then engage in in a dialogue where, which is very important, you know for us to start talking about this one. But now with increased threat, what I am very much worried, you know that this work that we have done with a lot of pain and with a lot of you know challenges in this context, is going to be lost and that is my biggest worry at this stage we do not have protection when we you know like start receiving trade i have told almost everyone from our security sectors to internationals that we cannot protect we do not have the means to protect you know this amount of materials documents and memorial items that we have collected and it can be taken away from us any time. And, and, but unfortunately, there was nothing from the side of the government. The government basically said that we cannot provide you any protection. And now if we start obviously representing, which we are not supposed to do, even do not talk about ICC. a little thing that we talk about ICC and the victims is, is going to you know, put further us and, and my colleagues in danger.
4: I think this time it it is quite dangerous because what we are also seeing is a spike in the number of targeted killings, particularly against the people who have a voice. So what we really think that this is a tactic to make sure to silence as many people as possible. Many people are, whether they got killed, whether they got threatened, and some of them left the country, and, and so many of others, you know, They are just doing self-censorship. And this is because everyone is so scared for their lives. You know, like there were people who came one week or one night or two days before on the TV screen and they spoke about something, the next day they were gone. And I asked Huria in particular what it feels
2: like to be a woman in Afghanistan right now.
4: And particularly, I think as a woman, what is really more concerning for me is that Like, right now, so many women started enjoying at least, I'm not saying the situation became perfect. I'm not trying to say that, you know, the situation has changed, like, dramatically for many women. But we were just moving towards that direction. And now it seems like we are being, like, our way, our path is being cut short. Like, what I really hoped for my daughters I, I don't think they, they will be able to do that. That is really harrowing to hear from people that we've
1: met and we've seen and were so optimistic, I think, before, even though it took a very long time for the ICC to get anywhere with Afghanistan. they This sounds uh, a lot like you can almost hear the hope uh, uh, disappearing from
2: their voices as they speak. Yeah, it's uh, um, it's not nice. And we're very comfortable here ourselves as we're talking about it uh, in The Hague. But uh, that is our job as well. So um, we need to look at what's uh, what's going on here.
1: What is happening at the ICC itself at the moment?
2: Yeah, here I would come to another level of limbo. Basically, the Afghanistan government has asked for a deferral. And they did that very quickly after the judges agreed that the office of the prosecutor can open investigation, details a little bit from the Office of the Prosecutor from the 16th of April 2020, more than a year ago. These court filings help us understand a bit of what's going on. The government is basically saying, leave it to us because we are prosecuting. Well, not a lot is public and it doesn't actually become public until the court decides that it can be. So I'm reading stuff that's dated from May now in July. Hardy Marafat says that this issue of transparency is really causing some problems
3: as i said you know this this lack of transparency and lack of a clear communication from the side of the court you know put us in a very very difficult situation and we you know time again time and again we stress that we cannot be the representative of the court or you know the face of the court in this uh, uh, situation in these circumstances that we are facing you know
2: you know, there's a lot of gaps and a lot of holes in this. So I called Isan Khan from the Afghan Analyst Network to help me work out what we do know and what is just a bit of a guesswork. So Isan says it's clear that the Afghan authorities have been working for years actually to stop this investigation. Since 2016, he says, when the former prosecutor Fatou Pensuda first warned the authorities that she'd be asking for, an investigation. He said from then, a technical committee was set up by the Minister of Foreign Affairs. They approached the United States. At that time, Washington said, well, it's your decision how to deal with the ICC, but please help to get rid of it. But Isan says the authorities in Kabul have actually played different games with this. And they've also been using the threat of ICC investigation to put pressure on the Taliban during the peace negotiations.
5: So officially, the Afghan government position is that they are blocking the ICC investigation from the beginning. But in the last meeting that the delegation had with the former prosecutor, Fatou ben when they came back to the country, they also came with a political message addressing to the Taliban that there is ICC and we are happy to cooperate with the ICC investigation. And uh, according to Hanifatmar, who was leading the delegation, he said to the journalist that uh, he requested the uh, uh, prosecutor to start a kind of joint investigation. I think the Afghan government is trying to to stop the investigation, uh, ICC investigation as a whole. But in some degree, it is interested to do some joint investigation so uh, they can uh, use the ICC as a leverage against the Taliban, giving this uh, political message that uh, if you're not making peace with us, if you're going to continue your uh, violence, uh, there is uh, an independent, strong, independent uh, criminal, international criminal court that you would not be secure uh, out of Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, the Afghan authorities and institutions would uh, investigate you, and out of Afghanistan, the uh, ICC as an international uh, institute, would investigate you. I think that was a very clear message clear message to the Taliban.
2: Isan also says that in terms of their relationship with The Hague, the Afghan authorities, when they asked for a deferral, they sent information about 115 cases to The Hague.
5: These cases were mainly against the Taliban and against Daesh and also named the foreign troops, but didn't specify which country. But they didn't give any information about if any of those cases are about the Afghan National Security Forces or not. And from the OTP public information, we can find that at least in January last year, the Afghan government shared information of three 1500 pages information about the about the cases Afghan government submitted but that is the second package. the first package which I said didn't give information about that is uh, according to a source in the Hague that is a package around uh, 8,000 uh, pages related to those 18 cases.
2: And as for whether we can really trust whether Afghanistan can investigate war crimes themselves, Isan says that the government's established a small department under a structure in the Attorney General's office. It's called the Department for International Crime Investigation. They've got quite limited capacity, up to about 20 people working there, all sitting in a room working on all of the cases, doing an investigation into all of the cases in Afghanistan. As he puts it, the daily, everyday war crimes and crimes against humanity allegedly committed by the warring parties. But he says they don't have a lot of information in that unit really about what they're doing, about the concept of international crime.
5: I believe they are doing their, their, their job, doing an investigation. But uh, if we look in, uh, in the quality of their work, uh, I am in contact with uh, some of the, the members of that department. If we look on the, the, the quality of the work, I believe that the, the investigation they are doing is not that much strong that could be used in front of any court.
1: So you said that we have some information also about this from court
2: filings. Uh, what did you find out from those? Now, these filings, I think they're really important because they really cut to the heart of the issues. Victims advocates are arguing that really there's a need to have transparency about what the Office of the Prosecutor is doing for outreach. And they obviously believe that the Afghan authorities aren't really investigating.
3: There has been a delegation uh, from the Afghan government side that they came and visited, you know, and when they came to the Hague and and, and obviously, let me put it this way. The Afghan government, you know, their official position and narrative is that any justice or any process of justice and plan of justice is is against the peace in Afghanistan. And as such, you know, when they come and tell, you know, officials of the court to us, you know, this is a total deception, basically. Every time that they come to the Hague, they will come with thousands of pages of document in Dari and Pashto and we know that this is being done intentionally to further delay you know, the process. And I specifically ask that if you have done nothing in terms of investigating these cases, so why then are you going you know, to the ICC and telling totally the opposite of that? You know?
2: So the victim's advocates have been asking the judges to intervene? The victims' advocates have argued that, first off, the outreach, um, which, of course, the OTP says is not their problem, it's the registry's problem, is not happening. And that's really leaving the victims without knowing what is going on on the ground. And then also on the transparency fronts, they've put details into their filing of every contact they've had with every bit of the courts, so, you know, full copious notes about every email, and they basically show that... As people on the ground, they're being told practically nothing by the OTP. And then they ask whether the OTP has in fact really paused all investigative activities, as seemingly reported in some parts of the media. Then we've got filings from the OTP um, who argue back, no, this isn't your right, the investigation is ours, it's not yours. There's no other party in the courts who can intervene with this. The, our prerogative as uh, the prosecution is really important. Here's a quote from them. The prosecution notes that it regards the information specifically sought by the applicants as confidential. Details of the staff employed in the investigation, their professional expertise are matters which the prosecution will not share because of the need to ensure confidentiality. And the OTP basically say you're barking up the wrong tree. I mean, we haven't made a decision yet on this Afghan government deferral request Let me quote, they say the assessment is presently at a critical stage. Not only is judicial, i.e. ICC, intervention at the current time unwarranted, but it might be counterproductive. So they're saying, judges, you back off as well. And that's so different in tone and feel from what we heard from then prosecutor Ben Souda, during that appeals hearing that you really covered heavily, Steph, in December 2019, where she was arguing really forcefully that the judges needed to help her authorise this investigation. Yeah, it seems that this is a kind of different approach to the uh,
1: no peace without justice that we tend to hear from the OTP where they're really, really heavily on how important it is that everything gets investigated. I'm quite surprised that you quote this to me, that... uh, judicial intervention is currently unwarranted because they ask for it so much. But um, let's broaden this out maybe a bit. What are the U.S. interests in this? They are leaving Afghanistan. They are kind of washing their hands of it. Biden, on uh, July 4th, actually said, you know, let's not talk about Afghanistan. Let's talk about happier things, which
2: is a a huge cop-out. Well, you're right. The US involvement is really important, of course. That's one of the reasons why this particular ICC investigation got so many people around the world interested. It's because the Afghan situation also includes what happens to people who are renditioned by the CIA out of Afghanistan via other ICC member countries, um, how they were tortured, how they ended up in Guantanamo. Now, um, we've spoken previously to Catherine Gallagher, who represents two of the men, and I thought I'd better contact her again to ask whether we now can see a change in tone in the United States. Are they now actually doing their own investigations to ensure justice, assuming they still don't want, under Biden, just like under Trump previously, the ICC, to look
0: at their torture program? What it is doing in terms of the U.S. torture program I can tell you is at minimum nothing and even more um, still embracing a agenda of impunity. They are still objecting to the testimony of two contractors who were paid 80 million dollars to construct, to help construct the CIA's torture program. They're blocking their testimony. We're not even talking about blocking arrest warrants or blocking prosecutions. They're blocking testimony, information that is largely already in the public domain. So when it comes to a commitment to truth telling, when it comes to a commitment to redress for victims, when it comes to a commitment to ending impunity or accountability, we don't see that. So here we go, there's another level
2: of limbo for those particular victims who are also waiting for investigation
0: by the ICC while they've made some statements about wanting to have a different relationship with the court, when it comes to reckoning with the crimes committed by U.S. actors and American citizens in the situation of Afghanistan, the U.S. is still saying that it's not for the ICC to investigate. So as long as the Biden administration keeps in place that hostility an obstruction towards the ICC, I think it's doing damage. So
2: I also wondered whether Catherine as a lawyer who was involved, she was there previously arguing on behalf of her clients, and so she has a relationship with the court, whether she could give me some more insight into what's happening in the investigation.
0: I am in no better position than you are, Janet, to answer the question about what is going on behind the scenes at the um, ICC in an investigation that has been effectively put on hold for a year now, more than a year. My clients have not received any special information. We have made submissions to the court to try and get more information about what is happening. And in the case of the victims that I represent, Afghanistan is not in a position to be investigating these cases. So we have argued to the Office of the Prosecutor that this part of the deferral request at minimum should be rejected and the investigation moved forward. But we have not received any confirmation that that will be happening. So after a more than decade long preliminary examination, after a multi-year fight, to get the investigation that the prosecution wanted opened because of the pretrial chamber's initial denial of that request, we are again left in limbo. So I really get it, what she's saying about uh, the limbo issue.
2: I think that that's um, really important to say that we just don't know what's happening. But what also I noted in these filings towards the OTP saying, and towards the judges, to say that victims should be placed centrally, I was really struck by the concern that public attention has, and let me quote, disproportionately focused on crimes committed by the international forces to the detriment of other crimes. That's Spojmi Ahmadi Nasiri, I'm sorry if my pronunciation is off, who is representing or advocating on behalf of some of the Afghan victims. The view represented in that filing is that really thousands of Afghan victims won't get their day in court in the ICC because US involvement, pressure over the torture program, will deny them justice. The OTP is now tied up into knots by this Afghan government request, this you know, slew of paper that the Afghan government have uh, pressed on them and the victims now have to wait again and their needs are not seen. She follows up with, Afghan victims have become objects, proxies and spectators in a process which at its core concerns their interests. In doing so, the optics have deepened criticism that the court serves Western interests and excludes the very communities whose hardships and suffering are on trial.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's so disheartening to see victims kind of being ground up between the wheels of the ICC and the political interests that are here. Although I do think that it's really important that international forces and and potential war crimes are looked at in Afghanistan. When I see them speaking, I think, yes, I mean, they're right. Why would why would you focus so much on the u s and then uh, and their intervention and the rendition? And while that's super important, there are so many crimes that don't involve international forces, probably the majority of alleged war crimes in in Afghanistan that now also don't can't be looked at because this case is hampered so much by the politics of it. And it's really, this is the 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 major problem, I think, with the ICC is that it wants to be not political. And I'm sure the prosecutions are not political, but what you can prosecute and how effectively you can prosecute it is political.
2: I think you're right. Yeah. I mean, they're operating in a political environment. Yeah, though, I think
1: I'm uh, not saying that the, the, the prosecution will in some way cave to this pressure. It's just the fact that if you're looking at crimes from 2003, you know, there's there's almost 20 years that, that that you're looking at this. It goes so immensely slow.
2: Yeah, and really reminiscent for me of many other times when, I'd say, behind the scenes rather than written in documentation, you hear that from people that, you know, why is it that this court starts to look like it's not providing justice for people on the ground? Why does it look like it's not really resonating? And, you know, there's such a number of factors that go into that. So I still wondered, I I asked the people I've been chatting to um, who've been really committed over this last 10 years on behalf of Afghanistan's victims, those who've been working with the ICC or lobbying it, people like Horia Musadek, who've collected victims' testimonies, and I wondered whether she thinks
4: it's still important. Honestly, for me and, and for many members of the civil society, particularly members of the Transitional Justice Coordination Group, ICC is the only source of hope for us. You know, like we, despite everything that is happening, we are not giving up because this is the only, the only, like, how I describe to you, like, imagine that the ship is sinking and there is only one, you know, like part of the, you know, hook or, or, or rope or something that we all just stick to that. And we believe that maybe a miracle happened and we all survive. So, despite everything that is happening in the ICC and on the ICC, you know, like the process has been unfairly too long. The whole process has been politicized, you know, significantly. Pressure on, on, on the prosecutor, Fatou Bin Souda, was, was was enormous. But at the same time, you know, like uh, we are here and, and we want to show that nothing will deter us when it comes to call for justice and, and and we don't want to give up we 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 simply we, we can't afford to give up this is how i want to put it
2: maybe the one sort of bright hope on the the future horizon is if the united nations separately gets involved and sets up some kind of an in, independent investigation we've seen that happening in other cases Yeah, we keep mentioning them and we look at them sometimes, Syria, Myanmar. I was reminded recently, there's also been one in South Sudan. So, you know, maybe on that level, we can at least get some documentation done. And then let's see, I mean, let's not prejudge as well, uh, what the office of the prosecutor decides over the Afghan request for deferral, and then what the judges decide out of that. I'm just going to finish with a quote from the same human rights organization, which uh, I quoted from to start with, the ones who were behind um, supported efforts in this area. They say there is no chance that the ICC can undertake any meaningful investigation into Afghanistan. It's in nobody's interests except for the victims, of course. But as we've seen it many times before, these victims will unfortunately be forsaken. I hope this helps. Honestly, these days, I don't see any point in this anymore. Then We might see justice after all, but will any of the victims still be alive to actually see it? I don't know. I don't know either, but we'll carry on watching.
0: This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.